If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. You know, you start the day and you think, wow, this is pretty boring. There's not much going on today. And then all of a sudden, um, the government gets going. The government wakes up for the day, and off we go. They're renaming. We talked about this. They're renaming uh, the carbon tax payout. So uh, because you just don't get it, because you're stupid and you don't get it, we're going to rename the tax payout. And that will help you understand it better because it's named something different. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up in just a sec. And our environment minister, man, I swear he's gone off the deep end. But, you know, here's isn't he climbing towers and camping out on people's roofs before he got this job? Um, he said in a Montreal, this is our environment minister, Guibault, said in a Montreal interview that the government has made the decision to stop investing in new road infrastructure. That's what he said. That's a quote. Uh, remember when Dalton McGinty said the same thing about 20 some odd years ago? And we wonder why we're in a housing shortage or development shortage or infrastructure shortage that we are. So he's basically saying the same thing that McGinty said 20 years ago. And I remember him very vividly saying this. We're not interested. We're not interested in building roads. We're not interested. And yet we're increasing the population uh, more in the last couple of years than we have in history. Yet we don't need any infrastructure. Because, you know, if you build a home, chances are you may need a road to get to it. Or the firefighters might need it if it catches fire. So it's just, you know, and again, more proof today that the government was well aware from the immigration department that you were heading into terror. They were heading into uh, dangerous territory by exploding the population the way they have, putting stress on health care and the housing crisis. There's enough crisis to go around right now, yet mows right through it. And, you know, here we have, and, and the thing is, is why are we building EVs if we're not having any roads? But here's some of the quotes that, uh, that the environment minister said over the course of the weekend on uh, uh, electric vehicles. Overestimating their capacity to affect climate change is an error, a false utopia that will let us down again over the long or let us down over the long run. We must stop thinking that electric cars will solve all our problems. Has he talked to his boss? Have they had this discussion? Has him and Justin had this discussion? And, you know, it's like, well, if we see Ottawa pouring and the province is pouring billions into battery and electric vehicle plants, well, you kind of think you're behind it. He goes on to say the analysis we have done is that the network, road network, is perfectly adequate to respond uh, to the needs we have. Yeah, just like housing is. Don't build housing. Look where we are. Don't build roads. Guess where we are. Don't build transit. Don't do anything but talk. And he goes, and thanks to a mix of investment in active and public transit, in territorial planning and densification, we can uh, very well achieve our goals of economic, social, and human development without more enlargement of the road network. That's what he said. Here's what he says today. The headline says, will Ottawa stop funding roads? Minister pressed after contentious comments. He insists the federal government is funding new road projects despite comments earlier this week suggesting otherwise, which have infuriated uh, opposition. On Monday, the environment minister told a crowd in Montreal 
Our government has made the decision to stop investing in new road infrastructure. Have you told the population this? Well, I guess you did on Monday. This is all from the Montreal Gazette. There will be no more envelopes from the federal government to enlarge the road network. The analysis we have done is that that network is perfectly adequate to respond to the needs. When pressed by reporters two days later, he said he should have been more specific. Didn't they just get a new communications person prior to Christmas, which is why we're hearing all of these amazing announcements now? Their PR has been front and center. He didn't get the memo. Of course we're funding roads, he said on Wednesday. We have programs to fund roads, but we have said, and maybe I should have been more specific in the past, is that we don't have funds for large projects. What does that mean? So, you know, it's just absolutely insane. And is the Prime Minister selling this to the public? Have you been told about this? Well, you know, he's flip-flopped so much, I guess you really don't have to say anything now. But, you know, it's nuts. And the federal government is rebranding. The carbon tax rebate, previously known as the Climate Action Incentive Payment, liberals are now calling it the Canada Carbon Rebate, according to a release touting the amount Canadians will be reimbursed this year. A series of ministers announced the new name for the existing rebate program in Ottawa on Wednesday. The change does not come with any adjustments to how the federal fuel charge system and uh, corresponding refund actually works. The name was updated to the Canadian Carbon Rebate to clarify its function and make its meaning in relationship to the carbon pricing system more intuitive for Canadians, reads the government press release. You're too stupid to understand what the carbon tax is, but you're sure enough smart enough enough to know when you're putting lipstick on a pig and rebranding something that hasn't changed one iota because it's you that's not getting it. It's not the prime minister. It's you're not understanding it. So we're simplifying it for you. Here's your copy of green eggs and ham. You know, we've, especially in a, in a post pandemic world, we've heard of businesses coming and going new start, a new one starting old ones, uh, and maybe not so such old ones, uh, falling by the wayside. It certainly is a turbulent time to have a business. Uh, and, but this is, it seems like a great success story. Hamilton's own designer fashion label, Blackbird Studios has fully returned to the downtown after a pop-up at Lime Ridge Mall, uh, for over three years to talk more about their success. Lean BB is with us and Carrie Wade, founders of Blackbird Studios and here now. Lynn and Carrie, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, hi. How are you? I'm doing good, very well, and I'll just throw the questions out, and you or Lynn or Carrie can take whichever ones uh, you want, because uh, you know, obviously, I can't see you. But uh, <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about first Blackbird Studio. Uh, tell us about it. Give us a bit of history. Oh, so okay, so we are a local uh, design house. Uh, we've been in business now for 16 years. Uh, primarily, uh, most of our business has been in the downtown area on James Street. 
And uh, we actually took our brand to Limeridge Mall for the past three years. Um, we were actually invited by Cadillac Fairview to do a pop-up, and that six-month pop-up ended up being a three-year stretch. Uh, and then we have soon come to the realization that we wanted to return to James Street. So we are back on James Here Street. Here we South. are. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome back. Thanks. Um, how, did, how did you survive the pandemic? How did that change your business? Well, it was really quite a changeover. We um, actually got a contract with McMaster to do um, masks for their uh, nursing department. And Mm. we ended up making like literally thousands of masks for them, which was great. That tided us over. And actually, you know, Scott, our customers were really wonderful during that time. They ordered online from us. Yeah, we were lucky. We had just gotten our website up and running Mm -hmm. just before covid hit and uh, boy we were so happy that that happened because that really did save us it was a really tough time our our business as most retail or restaurants did get shut down so um, it was a tough time for us there's no question we were looking at every possible opportunity to make some money to stay alive and of course during that time that's when uh, Cadillac Fairview called us Uh, we were still shut down at the time when they were discussing Mm -hmm. a pop-up with us and uh, things had definitely changed um, in the downtown area. Um, certainly, there was a lot more homelessness just simply because there was no place for them to go. And so we saw a real change in our street dynamic, and we thought that this would be an opportunity to um, to reach out to more clients, too, up on the mountain as well. As, I know it's a weird, weird city that way. People on the mountain shop on the mountain. People below the mountain shop below the mountain. Mm. So it was nice to branch out up there as well. So why the decision to go back downtown? Well, we've been looking for our dream space now for 16 years, which included like a a facility to make our clothing and to sell our clothing because we really are a slow fashion brand. We're hands-on with our customers. We always have been. Um, and, and it was tough to keep up with the big boys up at the mall. There's no going to deny that there's constantly sales. There's constant turnover of like the fast fashion brands. And we, we just, that's not us. So, um, we worked a boxing day shift for the first time ever. We've never even been open on boxing day before. And Lynn and I did a mall shift and we saw so many of our customers and they, they were so happy to see us and we were so happy to see them that we thought, you know, we've got this beautiful space at 100 James street. So let's utilize it and open it up for retail. Uh, talk about your product more and, and why this is so unique, because many are are just trying to survive, and this is a success story. Yeah, well, we make everything by hand. We literally, from concept to completion, we draft all the patterns, we fit to our, our duties, we um, sew everything ourselves, we source the fabrics locally and globally, and um, everything is done by hand, the slow way. There's no corners cut. We use every scrap of fabric we can. Um, It's just to try to be more sustainable. Um, uh, We always say that uh, uh, waste is a design flaw. So we, um, (laughs) uh, it's a slow fashion brand. It it really is. And the other thing, Scott, too, is um, one of the things that kicked off our brand was we did a lot of textile um, printing, uh, silkscreen printing, and many of those prints showed up on our dresses. So they were really unique. And then I think our customers just started to understand what they could get from us in terms of 
Um, mm-hmm. If they were going to a bridal party, they wanted a particular color, um, they wanted a particular style, they stayed within our style lines, we could do a little bit of customizing for them too. And and again, because we have been in business for a while now, our cu- customers have stuck with us, which has just been incredible. It's been amazing. Um, obviously, I'm not going to Obviously, you're in, getting through. Sorry, COVID. go ahead. <laughs> but we're lucky. Um, uh, obviously, you're in the fashion industry. Any advice for anyone in small business? Uh, something that can translate across whatever category. Well, I think one of the one of the best things I think you can do is stay focused, develop your plan, and stick to it. And stick to it for a long time. Just when you think it's not working or you're never getting anywhere, it turns. So stick with it. Just just don't give up. It's 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 tough. It's a being a small business is one of the toughest things I've ever done with my life. Uh, but I'm very grateful it's worked for us and hopefully it will continue to work for us. And All I, right, we got a few I sorry, we got a few seconds left. Just give us the address, plug your business. Go ahead. It's uh, 100 James Street South. We're right at James and Hunter Kitty Corner to the Go Station and we are open uh, Tuesday through Saturday 10 till 5. And want to jump in with one last? I'm not sure if that was Lynn or Carrie. That was Carrie? That was me. <laughs> I was just going to say, keep it simple. Don't get too caught up in, um, you know, the, the logistics or how you're going to do it. Just just do it every day. Do some, just keep it. Keep, keep your nose to the grindstone every day. <laughs> there you go. Great advice and a success story. Lynn Beebe and Carrie Wade, founders of Blackbird Studios, moving back to James Street. Congratulations, Lynn and Carrie. Good luck. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. We appreciate it. We talk a lot about space because sometimes things just get a little wacky. Uh, so we'd like to take the show out of the stratosphere and, you know, just get some peace and quiet and such. But apparently it's getting quite noisy up there, too. Uh, as space flight and talk of rocket launches becomes the norm again as we move beyond the moon and so forth. Uh, and not to mention that thing in your hand called the cell phone and all of the satellites and, and things that are needed to keep the, all of our, all of our communication infrastructure uh, up and running it has meant that there's a lot of stuff in space flying around. Uh, is it a shooting star? No, that's just another satellite. Let's bring in Dr. Samantha Lawler, Associate Professor of Astronomy, University of Regina, and here now. Samantha, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. So how big a problem is this? Is there a lot of junk up there? Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of junk, and um, uh, many companies are launching more uh, every week, uh, especially SpaceX uh, for their Starlink mega constellation. Uh, they're launching batches of sixty satellites almost every week. They've got um, they've launched over six, almost six thousand satellites in total. Um, they're up to s- almost sixty percent of all satellites in orbit are from one private company. At what point does this become a problem where things start getting in the way? Um, so for, you know, for astronomy, we're down here. Oh, most of us are, are down here on the ground. We have a few telescopes in orbit. Those also see satellites. But um, most of our telescopes are here on the ground, which means we have to look up through all of those satellites. And uh, those satellites reflect sunlight long after the sun has gone down. So they look like little moving stars, right? 
Um, mm. So yeah, so this many satellites, it is causing problems for astronomy, right? Uh, when I point a telescope at something really faint and uh, keep the shutter open for a long time to, to do a long time exposure photo, um, I, I see many, many satellites fly through the field of view. And that makes it harder to see, uh, you know, the distant galaxies or distant comets that we're, we're trying to discover, right? So uh, beyond looking at them from the Earth, what what else does does this pose any sort of other challenge uh, over and above trying to look through all of it? Yeah, there's there's a lot of pollution associated with with launching these satellites and with um, burning them up at the end of their their life. Um, right. Starlink satellites, for example, uh, they're planning for each satellite to only last for five years, and they're planning to have something like forty two thousand satellites, which means that they'll be um, deorbiting uh, basically one satellite per hour. <laughs> um, and each of these satellites is like the size of a Ford F-150, right? So that adds a mm. lot of metal to the upper atmosphere. And we don't actually know what that's going to do. Um, so, so there's, there's just, there's a lot of problems associated with so many satellites happening so quickly that, um, a lot of companies haven't really th thought through all of these consequences yet. So is this being monitored in any way? How does, how do you keep track of this? Is it policed in any way? Um, there's very little regulation, actually. Um, e uh, each company has to get permission uh, from the radio broadcast agency in whatever country they want to uh, to send internet signals to. Um, and that's about it. Um, there's very little regulation in orbit. Um, companies obviously have a uh, huge incentive to not crash their satellites into each other, but um, it's actually getting quite crowded and nobody's really watching for that, that safety aspect. And um, as uh, more and more satellites are launched, uh, collisions become more and more likely. So that, that's something that I, I do worry about a lot. Uh, that was my next question was, is this, is there a worry that it just gets so crowded up there that I don't know, maybe they're banging off the space station or are they, yeah. uh, engineered in such a way that they look out for each other? I mean, is there any sort yeah. of th so, yeah, threat so that they might bang into something or each other? Starlink in particular does have, um, collision avoidance and they so far have been doing a very good job of it, but uh, they're going to launch even more satellites, and we don't actually know how perfect it, it will be in the future. Um, if two satellites do crash into each other, or if they crash into one of the millions of pieces of space debris that's up there, um, everything in orbit is traveling at several kilometers per second, right? Way faster than a bullet. So even like mm. a fleck of paint can cause serious damage. Uh, and if two satellites crash, that makes a whole bunch of pieces that could crash into other satellites. Um, and you can get this runaway collisional cascade called the Kessler syndrome. Um, and then we wouldn't be able to use orbit for decades, potentially. So that is the worst case scenario. Uh, so far, we've avoided it, but we're still launching more satellites and there's not really any oversight to, to keep that from happening. So what is the solution here, Samantha? Because obviously, you know, we talk about AI, we talk about technology all the time. It's not going anywhere. And I'm, I'm guessing it's the same with satellite technology. So so how do we how do we take care of this? How do we uh, monitor it? How do we uh, what sort of solution is there? Yeah, we need strong international regulation of satellites, right? There needs to be limits on the number of satellites in orbit. 
Um, but international regulation is very slow, right? And and meanwhile, uh, companies like Starlink are launching batches of 60 more satellites every week. Um, so uh, so consumer pressure, right? If, if you use Starlink, tell them that you want them to take orbital safety seriously. Um, so so that, that's really all that we have to work with right now. Um, uh, international pressure is coming. International regulation is coming, but it's, it's going to be very slow. So, um, so I'm hopeful that everything will stay safe in orbit until then. Um, but uh, it definitely something that I worry about. Why are, are there the need for so many of these? You know, why are certain companies launching so many? That is a fantastic question. And I would love to know the answer to that from the satellite companies themselves. Um, I have not seen it fully justified why they need 42,000 of these and why there needs to be so many different companies with the same uh, same kind of game plan of tens of thousands of satellites. Um, uh, I think that satellite companies need to need to justify that and justify the the pollution behind their launches and um, and that they can see, keep orbit safe with those large numbers. Who's doing this most? Is this mostly North America, uh, United States? Well, right now, um, it, it's mostly uh, SpaceX's Starlink constellation, right? Um, they they have launched almost 6,000 satellites, uh, right? Like I said, 60% of all satellites belong to this one mega constellation that has been launched in the last four and a half years. Um, but there are many other companies that are lined up to do the same thing. Uh, Amazon Kuiper, uh, the UK's OneWeb. Uh, there's a Chinese uh, mega constellation that has started launching, right? So there, there are many other companies lined up to do the same thing. Uh, so, yeah, so we need international regulation as fast as possible to, uh, to keep orbit usable for future generations. Uh, are, are, is it, are we close to it not being usable? Because if all of a sudden things start banging into each other, I think that would get everybody's attention pretty quick. Or is it just like this vast world and we're not caring about that yet? Yeah. So the, the, you know, the, the definition of Kessler syndrome is that, um, you stop launches and the number of collisions continues to increase. We're already there, but it's very slow, right? So like there will mm. be collisions if, if nobody, uh, avoids them, right? Um, so, uh, by adding more stuff, we make those collisions happen more frequently. <laughs> so, uh, so we have to be very, very careful. Like we're right on the edge of of this runaway collisional cascade now. And and there's been many companies that have talked about, oh, we'll send something up to collect all the space junk. Um, yeah. Right. I see. I see talk of this a lot. Right. But I've never seen it demonstrated. So, uh, so right now we're stuck with what's in orbit. And and um, you know, many of the little pieces will slowly fall. Uh, fall down and burn up in Earth's atmosphere over the course of years or decades. Um, but <laughs> right, we're we're adding stuff much faster than that. So uh, yeah, so so it is it is a real concern. Dr. Samantha Lawler with us, Associate Professor, Astronomy University of Regina. A lot of stuff up there. We should maybe be paying attention to that. Samantha, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, clear skies, everybody. 
We heard earlier in the week uh, the fallout from the Auditor General's report on the Arrive Can app. This was uh, used to monitor travelers during the global pandemic. Uh, it was supposed to cost like eighty grand. I think it ended up costing like sixty million. And the Auditor General really isn't sure because the records in in the record keeping is so bad that she's really just making an estimate here. And in one line, and I've said this the other day, that stood out for me in this because this is just the Arrive Can app. But to me, this line can apply to any government department um, or, or any issue, whether it's housing, health care, um, uh, affordability, whether it's uh, population, immigration, uh, international students. Uh, the Auditor General said in regard to the Arrive Can, uh, quote, this is a glaring disregard for basic management practices. This is a glaring disregard for basic management practices. And I think we're even seeing that with the environment minister and him saying something completely different than the prime minister is saying on the building of roads. Nobody seems to know what's going on. Nobody seems to be able to manage anything. Let's bring in Michael Barrett, conservative shadow minister for ethics and accountability, or accountable government rather, uh, with the conservatives and with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Scott. You know, Michael, this is the latest story of the day, it seems. But that comment that I made, a glaring disregard for basic management practices, you could use this pretty much for any portfolio. Yeah, look, this is, uh, it's it's unbelievable. As you said, an app that was supposed to cost $80,000 ballooning to more than $60 million, when you even have the Auditor General, you know, this is a general with an army of auditors who cannot figure out how much the government actually spent on this on this uh, COVID era app. Now, um, some would say, well, you get what you pay for. Well, in this case, they spent 60 million bucks and it still sent 10,000 people wrongly into house arrest for two weeks. But um, this isn't even the worst of it. One of the contractors who worked on the Arrived Can app, um, we thought that, you know, the, 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 upsizing uh, as revealed by the auditor general from 11 million to 19 million for a two person firm that did no IT work on this app but they they still had a 19 million dollar contract it was revealed today in La Presse that they received contracts worth 258 million dollars from Justin Trudeau's government since 2015 and the kicker here is it's two guys in a basement in a, in a suburban home in Ottawa that raked in a quarter of a billion dollars in contracts from, from Justin Trudeau's government. So, so we're calling for the Auditor General to specifically audit every penny of work that these, uh, that these folks have been awarded. Uh, as I said, this is just one of many problems for them right now. What's next? Where does this go? You talked about the Auditor. Yeah, so we're calling today for uh, for the Auditor General to to make this uh, make this a priority to specifically investigate this uh, this firm, this GC Strategies firm, with two hundred and fifty a quarter of a billion dollars. I, I I just I can't imagine how no one in the government was alive to the fact that um, that this was a problem. But then you get the details on it, and that's that you know these these two guys who are. Um, who are doing uh, uh, bonanza business on the backs of, of Canadians? Um, they're taking the officials from the government out for you know out for um, you know uh, uh, whiskey tastings and and luxurious dinners, and then in in return 
the uh, Trudeau's officials are allowing these guys to write the contract requirements to the exclusion of everyone else. So, so they're the only ones who qualify for, for the contracts that they're being awarded. Um, the Auditor General referred some of her concerns uh, on the Arrive Can audit to the RCMP, and uh, the same would apply. Any, any concerns that the auditor finds in reviewing GC strategies, um, anything that, that uh, appears to be criminal in nature would be referred to law enforcement. Uh, you know, we hear the discussion a lot, Michael, in regard to uh, the amount of consultants and, and contract work is done by the government. But then we hear, you know, the reason for that is to save money. Yet, on the other hand, we've seen the population uh, of the civil service explode over the last few years. So how do you where are all these new people that are being hired? What are they doing? Uh, are, are like, is there too much consulting, not enough employees or too much of both? Look, we have uh, we we've seen the size of the civil service um, grow dramatically under under Justin Trudeau, but so too has outside consultants. You'll hear people often ask, you know, well, conservatives say that they want to fix the budget, and of course we will do that. Um, but but what are you going to cut? Well, we're going to cut the the twenty billion dollars a year that uh, that or the twenty billion that Justin Trudeau is spending on outside consultants and and these contractors uh, working on on these programs, they're collecting. Uh, millions of dollars and doing no IT work on IT projects. That doesn't make any sense. So we either have the capacity in-house or we don't. But when we need to fill that gap, you bring in people who can actually fulfill that function, not just someone who's you know sending direct messages to people on LinkedIn and uh, collecting a commission of, of 30%. You know, we have, we have people lined up at food banks in communities you know, across this country. People are struggling to, to pay their heat bills and to keep the lights on. And you have uh, insiders um, who are friendly with, with Justin Trudeau's government who are getting massive uh, sweetheart deals. And it's, um, you know, it, it, this is why we need to have the, the Auditor General take a look at it. This is why the RCMP are investigating some of the contractors on, on the Arrive Can Boondoggle, because this is, this is uh, government after eight years of Justin Trudeau. No one, no one is accountable, and, uh, and it's time that that changes. Michael Barrett with us, Conservative Shadow Minister for Ethics and Accountable Government. The fallout from the Arrive Cam, uh, Arrive Can app scandal and the cost to Canadian taxpayers. Michael, thanks for the time and insight. Be well. You as well. Take care. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Environment Minister Stephen Gabot insists the government is funding new road projects despite comments earlier in the week suggesting otherwise. Uh, on Monday, the Environment Minister told a crowd in Montreal, our government has made the decision to stop investing in new road infrastructure. According to the Montreal Cassette, quote, there'll be no more envelopes for the federal government to enlarge the road network. The analysis we have done is that the network is perfectly adequate to respond to the needs that we have. When pressed a couple of days later, he now says he should have been more specific and was referring to a specific project regarding a tunnel uh, in and around Quebec City uh, and saying that, no, no, we are funding roads, uh, which um, he's referring to one specific project when he made that statement, as opposed to all of them. Uh, I'm not sure who's buying that. Marvin Ryder with us, professor to Group School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm great. Thank you. Glad to be with you. 
Marvin, how do you build more homes for millions of people, but we don't have the road infrastructure or network to get to them? I mean, it, like, you know, we, I remember Mar, uh, Dalton McGinty very, very vividly saying we're not interested in building. And now we are where we are. So uh, whether we're taking this out of context, as the environment minister suggests that we are, and he's referring to a certain project, uh, what are your thoughts on, on what we're hearing right. and this stance? Right. Well, if you don't mind, let me just put this in a little bit of context for you. So all three levels of government spend money on roads, the federal government, the provincial government and the municipal government. And uh, that spending, it really is dependent upon whose road it is. So there are provincial highways. Take the 400 series of highways. They're a provincial responsibility. And our provincial government in Ontario spends around three billion dollars a year on roads. Now that money is spent in two ways. One is maintaining the roads that you have. So surfaces need to be repaved or leveled or what have you. And then occasionally we build net new roads adding value. Then the municipality also pays a big share because they're really responsible for the local streets and what have you. Now, oddly, the federal government actually doesn't spend a lot of money every year on roads per se. They will help uh, revise that infrastructure or renew it as it goes. They tend to deal with the big projects like bridges and tunnels. So, for instance, in Montreal, there was a, a major bridge that spanned the St. Lawrence River in bad shape, and the provincial, the federal government kicked in a large amount of money to rebuild that. So, yes, there's a road on top of it, but there really are not very many federal roads. Now, what I think Stephen Gilboa was trying to say here on Monday was, we're really not interested in increasing the number of federal-type roads out there or federal-type infrastructure. We are going to keep spending money because in Canada, given the freeze-thaw process, infrastructure wears out and has to be replaced, and we will continue to do that. But oddly, the federal government's spending on that infrastructure tends to be on the order of less than a billion dollars a year, something on the order of 600 to $750 million a year. Most projects you see of road building are provincial and municipal. So it is a bit of a tempest in a teapot. The federal government never builds that many roads. And what he's essence saying is, if you're looking for net new things, we're not really interested in doing that because we're not sure they're needed. And you can think here in Ontario, Doug Ford announced two of these. One was uh, that extension, and I'll get the number wrong, I'm sure, but I think it was called the 413, which was going to get around the Holland Marsh. And then there was another sort of ring road around Toronto. Not sure they're necessary. And at this point, that means the provincial government is spending the money totally on its own. Uh, we remember this with a housing debate. We had the same debate over housing. And again, I go back to my initial question. How can you right. increase the population to what we have? How can you increase the demand for housing that we have in front of us and not complete the rest of the infrastructure? And I'm not sure that saying, well, they don't really build that much anyway, is really the answer that Canadians are looking for. It's the message that's coming out of this. I think of my trip to Switzerland in the summer, which we all know is the utopia of utopian uh, countries that take care of their people. And I remember very vividly going through at least 20 tunnels from where I was going uh, uh, from the airport that where we landed in. And I remember just being amazed at the infrastructure, amazed at the ingenuity, and amazed at the engineering prowess here. And they were very, uh, they, they bragged quite a bit about it and said, yeah, it takes about two years to do one of these tunnels through a mountain. So why is it it's either extreme this or extreme that? Why can't we have a combination of all of this? Well, I think, I think we can. And I think that, again, if I was really 
and I'm not speaking on behalf of the minister, but if I was trying to, I think he would say, yeah, you know, we want to maintain what we've got and where we need to build something new to help out, we will. But generally speaking, that is more provincial or municipal level. And, and here, at least locally, the theory is being what they call intensification. I don't necessarily new, need new roads if I'm going up rather than out. What I need are the roads to be properly sized for what we have. So, for instance, you need to widen a road. Well, that's not net new infrastructure. The province and the federal government could be there for something like that. Also, um, uh, spending money on transit. So I told you earlier that Ontario spends about uh, $3 billion a year on roads. It actually spends about $7 billion a year on transit projects. And this, again, is where the federal government will come in with money to through the carbon tax, what have you, to build that kind of infrastructure. So there is infrastructure that's coming. But it's not necessarily virgin roads, a low population density type construction. They're looking to intensify. And so anything that they can do to help that way, I think they will. Is the message contradictory on electric vehicles where he's saying this isn't the utopia where, well, we're all getting millions or billions in subsidies for EVs? Right. Well, again, I just have to back up and say what the federal government is saying is zero emission vehicles. Electric vehicles are a type of that, but another one might be a hydrogen thing. So again, no, but we're investing is, all of the we're investing in batteries and EVs, and it seems that the environment minister is contradicting that. Well, the Ontario government is investing in those electric vehicles, absolutely. Other provinces, not so much. But the the point is, again, any technology, whether it's electric vehicles, hydrogen vehicles, you need the infrastructure to support it. But is that new roads? Instead, it might be charging stations, or it might be in the case of hydrogen storage facilities where the hydrogen can be kept safely for people to fill their tanks. And you can't speak out of both sides of your mouth. If this is the infrastructure you want, looking at 2035, you have to invest in it now as we get closer to that timeline to make it all reality. And I think Stephen understands that. Now, he is an environmentalist at heart, but I think he understands that. And I think the federal government is prepared to invest in that. They're just not looking to build a lot of roads to nowhere. And in my life, you know, we've seen these big fancy road projects. You remember the Spadina Expressway in Toronto that was going to be a road to nowhere. And eventually somebody said, this is silly, let's cancel it. You know, we want to make sure we're building purposefully and supportive infrastructure, not just make work projects. I don't think we're building anything, Marvin. That's the problem. Uh, but we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Marvin Ryder, professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Thank you, Marvin. As always, great fun. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Happy Valentine's Day to you. Are you going out? Are you going to get reservations at one of those restaurants where you're shoulder to shoulder because everybody's booking at the last minute? You can get a reservation if you're coming after nine or before four. It's one of those days, but good to see that the hospitality industry is uh, getting some much needed help. However, many of us or many of you may be using Uber or Lyft to either get food delivered to your house or you delivered to the restaurant, what have you. Uh, Rideshare Drivers Association and Ridefare Toronto are part of local groups representing Uber and Lyft drivers who are striking today. Let's bring in, let's bring in Erla Phillips, Vice President of the Rideshare Drivers Association of Ontario and veteran Uber and Lyft driver, and here now. Erla, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hello, Scott. Yes, I am. I'm still thawing out, though. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. So first, tell us what the Rideshare Drivers Association of Ontario is all about. 
Um, we are um, a grassroots organization um, of drivers, and uh, we are um, organizing drivers. Uh, we're bringing them together um, and uh, strategizing ways that uh, we can um, uh, be part of the political process and, you know, at, at both the city and the provincial level. Um, to ensure that drivers have worker rights, um, you know, drivers need fair pay, um, and we need other things. I mean, you know, we do a lot of hard work, um, and it is real work. We want to work with dignity, and we deserve to take home, you know, at least a floor of minimum wage after our expenses. So what's happening today, and, and who's involved in this? You know what? This is actually a global effort, a global push. Drivers um, in three major cities, Toronto, Vancouver, and Winnipeg, um, you know, are uh, part of this protest. 44 cities in the U.S., Mexico, and at least a couple of cities in the U.K. and Ireland are all um, part of this global push because we are all experiencing the same thing. So, uh, how? What is the reaction from Uber and Lyft to this? Uh, gaslighting. <laughs> For example, hmm. now keep in mind I am in Toronto, so I can only speak about Toronto area um, drivers. Um, and Uber is uh, saying uh, their usual narrative that we make thirty-three plus dollars an engaged hour, but an engaged hour means that we are often on the road for a minimum of two hours or more um, to earn that $33, but that is just gross revenue. We have expenses um, to take out of that, and because of that time, it cuts it down to below minimum wage. So what do you hope to accomplish with what's happening today? What's the message? Uh, you know what the message is, is that the public needs to know that, um, you know, their workers who are serving them, providing an essential service and who were cherished during lockdowns, we were heroes. Um, we're now being treated like zeros by these companies. Um, workers are often uh, unable to secure other employment. We have more than 60% of our workers are newcomers, are uh, marginalized groups of people, women, um, international students. They all deserve to be able to pay the bills and put some food on the table. And often we are choosing one over the other, but we all deserve to make a fair, livable wage. And we're not. Uh, whenever uh, these companies have gotten into issues before, whether it's with taxi companies or bylaws with municipalities, we remember how difficult it was for some of these ride-sharing, food-sharing services to get started in major cities anyway. Um, and, and I remember at that point their their response was, well, we're not a taxi company. We're just an Internet company, and this is just an, an, an Internet issue, and it's everybody else that's theoretically the taxi company. Does that fly here? We're just an internet company? No, because guess what? If they were just an internet company, then they wouldn't need us. And if we were all to turn off our apps and we were all to strike it, and I mean true unity with all workers, these companies would die. 
What about the fact that I'm guessing they're gaming, uh, betting on this, is that there's so many drivers out there, even if there's a group that are organized that don't want to do it, there's somebody that's going to fill the gap. Well, you know what, that's where, you know, the, the, the plan is for multiple strategies. We are working at the legislative level, um, working um, amongst other labor groups um, to ensure that workers have workers' rights and to ensure that at a minimum, we have a minimum floor of a minimum wage. Is there legal recourse here, Erla? Um, there are a number of cases that are going through legal um, uh, challenges right now. Um, for example, uh, we have already been deemed by the OLRB as employees, and that is going through the appeal process right now. Is this different, or is it a different issue or problem in other countries? Does it matter what the jurisdiction is here? Um, it, it, you know what? I mean, every country is going to have their own laws and everything else, but there is mm-hmm. at least a dozen countries across the world, if not more than a dozen, um, that have already deemed Uber drivers and gig workers as employees. Um, and there are a number of uh, just recently, um, Australia introduced new legislation to ensure um, that workers have rights and have a minimum floor of pay. Where do you think this is going, Erla? Do you think this is going to generate enough interest to make change for you? You know what? We know that this is um, uh, a commitment that we need to continue to work towards. We don't expect overnight change from these companies. I mean, you know, they just gaslight us anyways, and spew a bunch of facts, but don't open their books. Um, We know that we just have to keep pushing. We just have to keep working. We have to keep organizing and, you know, having these conversations with uh, governments um, to ensure that workers have workers' rights and a minimum floor. And it takes time. Is everybody striking today, Earl, or just some? I guess it's up to the individual. Um, you know, the people that we've been able to reach in our organizing efforts had options. Um, so they had the option of just taking the day off and turning their apps off and spending time uh, Valentine's Day with their loved ones. Or they had the option to come and join us um, in our uh, protest efforts. So we have a mix of people, um, you know, protesting in different ways. Orla Phillips with us, Vice President of the Rideshare Drivers Association of Ontario, veteran Uber and Lyft driver on strike today, looking for a fair deal. Erla, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you so much. The Environment Minister insists the government is funding new road projects, despite comments uh, suggesting the otherwise that he said to a crowd in Montreal where, quote, our government has made the decision to stop investing in new road infrastructure, said the Montreal Gazette. Quote, there will be no more envelopes from the federal government to enlarge the road network. The analysis we have done is that the network is perfectly adequate to respond to the needs we have. When pushed about this a couple of days later, he said, oh, no, we are funding roads. I was just referring to a project in a uh, tunnel project in uh, Quebec City. That's what that was all about. Uh, that and rebranding the payout for the carbon tax, uh, all that we'll discuss with Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, here now. Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. 
I'm well, Scott. You've got me in my hovercraft because the roads are too busy, so I'm hovering <laughs> along in that today. How are we supposed to import more people into this country and have a demand for housing but not build roads? I thought the federal government got a new communications person. Is the environment minister doing our prime minister any favors today? Well, and don't don't they want us to drive electric cars, too? So they need roads, know. as far as I know. Uh, no, look... Um, Jokes aside, uh, Pierre Polyev and his conservatives don't need to show up to work because the liberals basically do it for them. I mean, <laughs> uh, St- Stephen Guibault has just given uh, the conservatives another two or three day gift. This coming, Scott, in the same week that our abacus poll shows the liberals. 19 points behind the federal conservatives nationally and behind in every region of the country. And thanks, Stephen Guibault, for uh, the own goal. That's not very helpful to them. Over and above him giving gifts to the conservatives, which usually is the other way around, um, what does the message say? I mean, he's he's just throwing fuel on a fire, a tire fire. Uh, Well, I guess we won't need tires soon. Uh, It's Look, I don't know if he spoke in. I, I don't want to make excuses for him. maybe there was a linguistic thing, but he's been around the block as a senior cabinet minister long enough now. And also as a very successful environmental advocate to know how to communicate, to know that if he said what he said as the Gazette reported it, that it was going to be um, a car crash on a highway that apparently is sufficient enough to carry the cars. They like this just doesn't have, maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he senses uh, Scott, the end is near. Uh, and he feels to reestablish his credibility with his own um, radical environmental advocates. And there are lots of environmental advocates who are not radical, but um, Gibo mm-hmm. certainly would be on the more radical side. Maybe, maybe that's what's at play here. I, I, I honestly don't know. Cause it's a stupid thing to say. How do you think the prime minister is reacting to this? <laughs> He's probably seeing if he can spend the family day weekend back at that Jamaican guest house of his. Um, mm. I, I can't imagine he's happy. Hey, look, Justin Trudeau, love him or hate him, is a competitor. And when you're a competitor and you're trying to fight back, you're trying to come back and you keep getting it, your own team is doing something that knocks you back forward. You've got to be frustrated. The thing I remember very vividly about 20 years ago was Dalton McGinty saying the exact same words. We're not interested in building anything else. We've got enough. Does he not, does he not connect that era to where he is? Does he not connect the housing shortage, the crisis that we're having in healthcare, the population immigration, the student, uh, the student international student discussion? It seems like he's ob- oblivious to this conversation. Well, what's interesting with Gibault, and I'm not talking out of school, you can pretty much get this from anybody here. He's, you know, no shock. He's not um, necessarily the uh, most well liked of his cabinet colleagues. He kind of lives in his own place and space and has, uh, through his advocacy, that's why he was a good advocate, why he never gave ground, because he held firm to the things he believed. But that's not very helpful uh, when you have a bunch of 
other issues that create what they call intersectionality. So, yeah, you're letting in more immigrants, as you should be doing. I'm not opposed to that. But you're going to need the infrastructure for people. It just goes without saying. And, yes, you are. You have you. The government has its own program that subsidizes electric vehicles. They're investing billions of dollars into battery plants in Ontario and elsewhere. Where are these things going to drive if you don't have the network for them? He even also said that EV is not the utopia you think it is. And obviously, the mining of minerals critical to EVs is just as destructive as fossil fuel. He seems to be the only one having that discussion. Yeah, and I mean, look, his his industry's colleague, the industry minister, is bending over backwards, going around the world, trying to uh, strike deals to catch up with the U.S. and other jurisdictions that are way ahead of us in, uh, in that game. So... Again, some of it may just be what I said earlier. Gibo knows the time uh, is coming. The time is up. Maybe he wants wow. to push the envelope as hard as he can, and he just doesn't care. The problem mm. for him is there is a liberal party that does care about its political future, and he's not helping them. We said the same thing a couple of weeks ago about the prime minister and his view of the holiday and not really seeming to hide that or, or cover his rear end there. All right. I got to get your quick opinion on the reband, rebranding of the payout from the carbon tax. We saw, we saw this a couple of weeks ago. We thought they were kidding. Uh, and it says right in the news release, there's nothing changed here. It's just renamed. Uh, I had one, I had one listener say, did this cost us 60 million too? Well, Scott, you and I are old enough to remember when Brian Mulroney put in the GST and you got the GST rebate. The difference there was you got a check. You have to look at the check and say, oh, okay, yeah, now I know something. You don't get a check with this. It goes into your bank account. Not everybody's doing online banking. So if their great plan is to give us checks, good luck with that. I mean, the whole, you know, nature abhors a vacuum and the vacuum was they left this uh, undefined and unclear. They didn't sell why it was important, uh, and they've had their lunch fed to them by their political opponents. I don't think changing uh, the programming, the messaging to rebate uh, is going to do much to change their political fortunes. Do you think this is a communications problem, or Canadians have got the communication loud and clear, they just don't like the message? I think it's the latter. I, look, I, our, what our data shows is that the view on the liberals is hardening, not softening. So that would suggest that, you know, uh, barring some miracle, uh, some new brilliant strategy, uh, the liberals are going to have a hard time digging themselves out of the multiple layers of frustration that Canadian voters seem to have with them right now. All right, no more roads and a carbon tax rebrand. It's just a Wednesday. Tim Powers with well, his chairman. Well, you know what? Thought we can bring back the Jetsons. Let's have the Jetsons, George <laughs> and Betty. It'd be great. <laughs> Tim Powers, chairman, Suma Strategies, managing director, Abacus Data. Always fun. Thank you for the time. Be well. Take care, my friend. Bye. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It's a Hallmark holiday, I guess. Is it or isn't it? Uh, Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to you. Is it difficult for those that don't have a partner or do they really care? You just go hang out with friends, do something different. And really, is it that much better than the pressure that's put on us on Valentine's Day? And are friendships as important, if not more, than having a romantic partner. Let's bring in Sadaf Asan, a Toronto-based arts and culture writer and the co-host of Pop Culture Podcast, The Reheat, with us now. Sadaf, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. 
I am. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thanks for being here. Are you uh, convinced that friendships are as, if not more, important than having a romantic relationship? Believe it or not, I am. I very much seek this gospel, and I want everyone else to get there, too. I think it's about time we see pandemic. We Sorry, not pandemic, but we see platonic love is just as great as romantic love, I think, because I've experienced it. So it's still love. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, maybe you don't get a few smooches in there, but it can still be pretty mm-hmm. great. Did our uh, perception of this or has our perception of of relationships, whether it's romance or friendships, has that changed in a post-pandemic world? I think so. And I think that explains my Freudian slip there. So thank you. I think, you know, we're often considered, I'm sure a lot of people have heard in the West, we're going through a little bit of a loneliness epidemic. That's kind of been the case even before the pandemic. But I think during and since the onset of it, it's been a real issue. And I mean, if you even go by a survey by StatsCan, they say more than 40% of Canadians feel lonely, some or all of the time. That's that's a big number. So I think that just tells you why it's so important to have people in your life. And let me just add, because this is probably the most surprising thing. If you do have close relationships and really strong platonic bonds, you will absolutely live longer. You will be more likely to die from less likely. You will be less likely to die from just about all causes. We're talking heart problems chronic diseases, you name it. So get a friend, get close. It'll be good for you. Do we realize how important friends or or those relationships, even face-to-face, are? I don't know if we all do, because I think we are still living in a time where, for instance, Valentine's Day is such a big deal, and certainly for a lot of capitalist reasons, but I think a premium is still placed on love and sexual love and romantic love. And I do think that's a special thing, but I think we can get quite a lot of the things we want out of those, out of our friends. And I think one marker shows it's going towards that direction because Generation Z, they actually prefer friendships. They place more of a premium on that than any kind of romance. That's what they're looking for. Um, So I think that really bodes well for us as a society. Is one less work, less stressful than the other? (laughs) I don't know. I think it depends on how you tend to operate in friendships. Um, So it really depends. But I will say, you know, I spoke to a few experts when I was working on this story. And I learned that when you have less close friends and you tend to rely on your romantic partner for just about everything. And by that, I mean all plans, Mm. all advice, anything you might want to do together. It does place more of a stress on that connection. And so in that sense, it's certainly healthier to have other people in your social circle and network, Um, even if that means just getting closer to your neighbors, you know, find other people, build your community out. Does our view change as we age, the older we get? Ah, that's a good question. I think it does in a way. Um, You know, when you're kids, your parents are everything because they give you the basic skills to just be out there and survive. And then when you become a teenager, your friends are the ones who give you social skills. I mean, when you become an adult, it's like you start building that family unit. You know, when you become a we, that infamous we, and you become a family, you've got property, you've got a joint account. That's the whole thing. So I think we do tend to veer away from friendships the older that we get. But I think as we start to, as the cycle kind of starts to complete itself and kids move out and life looks a little bit different, it's important to bring that cycle back in. Even better if you've already got it going. And, you know, it's kind of funny when you think about it. Don't relationships evolve out of friendships? Maybe not always. I think 
so. I think if you're lucky and I think if you've got a healthy relationship, you've got a lot of friendship and that's what it's based on. I think the best romantic relationships are ones where you can call that person one of your best friends. Um, and, you know, we're, we're adults here. We don't, you know, there's no such thing as one best friend. You know, you can have as mm. many as you want. Um, I think it's really important. It's a good way also to build a family and raise a family, have a community for your kids. You bring up an interesting point, Sadav. What happened about the BFF? Best friends for life. One person. That's it. Blah, 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 blah. You could, we can have more than one. What does that mean? I think so. Dare I say it? I mean, I've certainly experienced it in my life. And I will say this. I think the older that I've got, I'm in my 30s now. I've really, especially during the pandemic, I got really closer to a lot of my friends. And I personally really felt that I found my soulmates in my friends. Um, and I, I think that's really powerful. I think if those people can make you feel loved and they're there for you and you connect with them you have similar interests that is so special so you, it doesn't have to be one person i think that's a very childish notion you know kind of like playing favorites a little bit it doesn't have to be that <laughs> way we can do whatever we want really as adults and that's why you can also have your spouse or your partner and bring someone else in Sadaf Hassan with us, Toronto-based arts and culture writer, co-host of the pop culture podcast, The Reheat. Friendship, just as important as romance. Sadaf, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. Interesting article in the Globe and Mail today. Liberals face political oblivion with Trudeau at the helm, says John Ibbotson. I will give you the first paragraph or so. More than a decade ago, Justin Trudeau took a dispirited, uh, a strife-torn third-place Liberal Party and recreated it in his own image, winning election after election after election. There are few voices of dissent within the party because the voices who matter all matter because of him. But the latest poll shows the Liberals headed for not just defeat, but dissemination in the next federal election. Even the most diehard Trudeau loyalist must be starting to wonder whether it's time for a change at the top. To talk more about all of this, John Ibbotson is with us, writer at large with The Globe and Mail, and here now. John, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well indeed. Thanks, Scott. Starting to wonder at the top. Do you not think, John, they must have been wondering for a while? I mean, considering the headlines, the polls, uh, why not just take a step back and at least give the party a fighting chance in the next election? And if not, rebuild for the next. Well, it's a really good question. I mean, as you know, since last summer, the liberals, uh, the conservatives have established a fairly sizable lead. And the reason I wrote the column today is that the lead is growing in places that I would not have expected to see it grow. Uh, there's an abacus poll and Leger polls, both that show the Conservatives tied in Quebec with the Liberals. And they're very dominant in Atlantic Canada, um, eating into the suburban uh, 905 in Ontario. Um, and the Liberals are the third pace party now in every province west of, of Ontario. Um, that would be a recipe for not just defeat, but a bit of a blowout if the election were to be held tomorrow. So yes, the, would, should Justin Trudeau uh, decide that you know he's accomplished what he wanted to set out to accomplish it's time for new leadership and step aside um or does he think that he and only he can stop Pierre polio from becoming prime minister of canada that is a very typical attitude for a politician to take stephen harper probably should not have fought the 2015 election but he thought that only he could defeat P uh, justin trudeau and of course he failed at that justin trudeau may believe that only he can defeat pierre polyev and he's probably wrong about that too uh, as you mentioned, John, losing uh, uh, support in key places that that normally you wouldn't see. Uh, that being said, uh, whether you think you can beat somebody or not, the the data is what it is. 
are they waiting for something else? I mean, how low does it have to go before you pull the plug? If you were to arguing uh, to stay the course, I guess your argument would, would go like this. Um, interest rates are going to start to come down uh, later this year. Inflation is coming under control. Um, we may see uh, signs of genuine economic growth, although there aren't any right now to speak of. Um, and as people start to feel better and more secure, uh, they will be more interested in uh, giving a second look to the liberals, especially if the liberals are successful in convincing people that Pierre Polyev is really Donald Trump uh, 2.0 and, and for the North. That would be, I suppose, the combination of factors. But as, as I said in the column, Pierre Fournier is a very fine analyst. He, he runs the site 338Canada.com. I have a lot of respect for him. Um, and he believes that the coalition that the conservatives have put together um, is baked in. And unless something really egregious happens, um, it's not going to shift between now uh, and whenever the next election is. And I think he's right. I think the, um, the, the, the Polyev conservatives have reestablished the Harper conservative coalition, the one that Daryl Breaker and I wrote about years ago in The Big Shift, which is Westerners and suburban immigrant voters in the 905. Uh, and that gets you a majority government every time. Uh, so basically, it sounds like he's just trying to run the clock out, hoping that Polyev will make a mistake between now and then, shoot himself, shoot himself in the foot, which, again, the conservatives have done many times. They have indeed. And who knows, if Donald Trump wins the election in November in the United States, will that create uh, so much concern in Canada for what could happen to us that um, we decide to, to go with, uh, an experienced leader who's who you know was confronted Donald Trump before. I don't know, but I don't think so. I think, in fact, um, it's more likely that voters are ready to, uh, to have a change. After all, you know Brian Mulroney about ten years, Jean Chrétien about ten years, Stephen Harper about ten years, um, Justin Trudeau eight years and counting. So you know it's time. I don't remember anybody being disliked as much, John. I mean, I remember during the Harper and, you know, depending upon what political stripe you were, you hated the other, you didn't like the other, whatever. But I don't remember such a disdain for the prime minister as I'm seeing now. Is that accurate? That's, you know, I really haven't looked at the comparative data on, on popularity. Brian Mulroney, in the wake of the GST fight and in the wake of the failure of the Charlottetown Accord, was mighty unpopular. Uh, he was, uh, I would have to say the only time that I've, I've felt a prime minister be as unpopular as Mr. Trudeau is right now was in those last days of Brian Mulroney and Mr. Mulroney left. Um, he thought the best shot was for a successor to try to right the ship. Um, and that failed. And that, by the way, uh, is an answer to one of your earlier questions. Leaders who do step aside so that somebody else can, uh, you know, as I say, right the ship, um, Pierre Trudeau uh, and then Brian Mulroney. <clears throat> well, John Turner failed and Kim Campbell failed spectacularly. So there's a good argument that whoever might replace Justin Trudeau wouldn't do any better than Justin Trudeau. Yeah, but is that really a point, John? I mean, I think everybody knows the numbers, uh, you know, the, the writing's on the wall here. It's over. So uh, no matter if somebody else does better or not, isn't that irrelevant? It's about rebuilding the party and moving on rather than continuing to rearrange the chairs on the Titanic. Well, I'll play the devil's advocate here. Um, yeah. I think you're right, but I'll play the devil's advocate. You could say that you know Justin Trudeau, as they say, could save the furniture, that he could hold on to uh, the island of Montreal, that he could hold on to downtown Toronto, that he could hold on to downtown Vancouver, um, and provide a base for a new leader. 
whereas a new leader coming in and receiving a, a big defeat uh, would now be dispirited. There'd be internal party fighting. You'd have that kind of civil war that, that the liberals are so famous for, Turner versus Kretchen, you know, Natchez versus Ray, that kind of stuff. So you, you could argue that even though we know we're headed for defeat, it'll be better for the party if Justin Trudeau takes the defeat and then there can be a new new leadership for rebuilding. Uh, that makes I'm sense. Not sure that I buy it. But. That makes sense. That- rather rather than you know rebranding the new or, or rather than rebranding the new team with a loss, let the old team take the loss and then rebrand the team. That makes complete sense. Uh, let me ask you this, John: the longer he stays, will it be harder for the Liberals to rebuild? Yes. Uh, well, it's certainly the longer he stays, if he decides to stay. I mean, he only there's, no, there's very little time left. He would have to leave. Uh, this spring, to, in mm-hmm. order to have enough time for, to choose a new leader and get ready for the next election, um, if he decides to stay, then I think we're, we're we have what we have. You, the polling numbers that we have now, they may narrow somewhat, but we're going to be headed for a majority conservative government whenever the next election is. Um, as you say, maybe that's the best thing uh, in order to re- to rebuild the the party later. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, you can argue it both ways. Is the prime minister as smart as his dad? You know, I've often been asked, but, you know, was Mike Harris really dumb? Uh, you know, uh, how, <laughs> how, how, how dumb is Justin Trudeau? Let me tell you something. If you become premier of a province, uh, you become prime minister, you're pretty smart. Yeah. It's a hard job. It's not easy to do. You might not have the intellectual um, grasp of a Michael Ignatieff, but then how successful is Michael Ignatieff? Politics is is about a different kind of smarts than the smarts of a university professor. Um, I've had many conversations with Justin Trudeau, uh, not lately, uh, but but certainly in the past. He struck me as as an informed, engaged, um, and 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 charismatic uh, leader. Uh, it's just that the charisma's worn off. John Ibbotson is with us, writer at large, The Globe and Mail. His latest liberals face political oblivion with Trudeau at the helm. John, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Scott Radley, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up after the 6 o'clock news. He is here now. Scott, thanks for taking the time. Hope you're well. I am. Is it appropriate to wish you a happy Valentine's Day? I'm not sure. I'm never sure on this day what the appropriate greeting is. You know, to a, to you a can colleague. Say, yes. No, nothing wrong with that. As a matter, a matter of fact, I just had an expert on that said that friendships, uh, friend relationships listen, are yes. just as important than romantic relationships. There you go. Well, do you agree? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> no, I do. <laughs> It depends, depends what you're doing, really. Yeah, I think it is. I, and I think it's something, and I asked her this, I think it's something that you appreciate more as you get older. How's that? Uh, yes, although on the flip side, I also think that those who don't have the romantic relationship in their life or a partner, as they get up in years, it becomes more of a problem. Yeah. Suddenly and I think, now you know, you're, romantic- you're moving on. You don't have a family probably. You don't, I mean, I, I, I get the point. I do understand the point, but I also, I, I'm not sure I would say more important or less But then again, important. if you don't have friends, how do you, if you don't have friends and how do you have a relationship? Cause usually a uh, friendship develops into a relationship. Well, sometimes. In some ways, so, yeah, yeah, sometimes yeah. for All sure. Right. Anyway.
All right, uh, two big issues today. They have renamed the carbon tax payout. They haven't changed anything in any way, but they've renamed it because you just don't understand what it's all about. So this will hopefully help you understand what it is the government we're trying, uh, as the government we're trying to do. And the other interesting point was from our uh, environment minister, who I honestly think has lost it. He said on uh, Montreal media uh, that the government has made the decision to stop investing in new road in infrastructure uh basically saying we have enough then when he got called on this he said no no i was just referring to a tunnel in quebec city Mm. or what have you uh i remember when dalton mcginney said the exact same thing 20 some odd years ago and look where we are now let's go back to the first one first this renaming of the carbon tax i sincerely hope that what they didn't do what the government didn't do was hire the company that gave them the arrive can uh, to come up with a new name and pay them $54 our, million. That's for us. Thanks for listening. That's our last always, word. You beat to Steve you to the last word right, right here. There you go. Well, uh, yes. that, that, okay. So that, that's my first thought is, oh my, how much did we pay to hire consultants to chew on what could be a new name and then come up Change with what the they name. And, and But you know, Scott, you absolutely know that this was not just Bob in somebody's office going, all right, we're going to call it this. There were committees and consultants and study yeah. groups and experts and you know that we probably spent millions of dollars coming up with this new name. It, it, it's inevitable, yep. which is just entirely stupid because nobody is fooled by this. I don't think. I don't believe anyone yeah. is going, oh, really? What's this? This is very different. Um, as for the road thing, look, um, I, I agree with you. I am beginning to think that um, the environment minister, uh, Mr. Gibo, has turned into Arthur Fonzarelli season five of Happy Days when he jumped the shark. <laughs> and we've reached oh, a point man. now where stuff that is coming out of his mouth is bonkers. And, you know, I mean, some people will say, well, that started from day one. Some people will still believe that everything he says is brilliant, but you know, the reality is Scott, we still have an awful lot of people who don't live in downtown Toronto, two blocks from Mm. their workplace. We have people who live on, you know, I don't know, country roads. We have people who require their food to be trucked into cities, to supermarkets and their goods to be brought in. We have people who, you know, maybe have a heart attack on their street and need an ambulance or a fire truck to get to them. There, there are, you know, it's roads are not somehow a thing of the past and antiquity. They're an essential part of our life, whether, whether as environment minister, whether he likes the idea that we have cars or not. He can't just snap his fingers and make that change. This is not a dream, a fever dream that he's having that cars exist. This is the reality of how the world works. And I'm telling you, you you suddenly say, we're not going to build any more roads or we're not going to fix roads. We're not going to pay for infrastructure, whatever it is. It's, it's a, it's, it's a loopy idea. And uh, very similar to the loopy idea, we're going to bring all of these people in because that helps the economy, but we're not going to provide any housing for them. How do you make statements like this when you're bringing 1.1 million people in and you've got a housing crisis? So we're going to build houses and no roads? Well, as Ben just whispered in my ear, do electric cars not need roads? That I mean, was also a state. He, he went on the same Montreal interview and he said the whole EV thing, it's a utopia that isn't there and that the, 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 this isn't what everybody thinks it's going to be. Then why are we spending all this money on battery plants and assembly plants? 
Um, yeah, it's just it's they're lost. It, it's hard to argue with someone who I don't think sometimes really wants to be in the real world. I mean, that's and and you can be all you want as far as desiring a green utopia future. I haven't. That's fine. But there's also you must keep a foot on the ground and recognize that the world does exist as it exists, and we still have to get by day to day. And the idea that somehow we're going to get rid of all gasoline, we're going to get rid of all heating except for heat pumps that don't work in certain conditions within this country. We're going to not have roads. We're going to do this. We're going to, it just, it's, it's a nice idea. It's not reality. It's, it's not reality. It's, and, and, and no matter how much you wish it to be, Scott, look, I can close my eyes and plug my ears and go la, 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 and wish and dream. (laughs) And I'm, that I've got a billion dollars in my pocket. It doesn't make it happen. You ha- th- there's a process to get there. And, and I just, I, I, uh, you know, I, again, I just, it's hard to discuss, it's hard to have a conversation about or with someone who clearly doesn't want to be talking about reality. The discussion continues after six o'clock with the Scott Radley show. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a good one. See you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. And as always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer for the last word. As Scott just alluded to, uh, Steve emails us on rebranding the carbon tax. And of course, he says, I wonder if the rebranding consultation of the carbon tax will cost $60 million like the Arrive Can app. As ever, Steve, keep right except to pass. 